so we, then we go into the harm reduction mode. Like if a patient is using heroin seven times a day and they're on Suboxone and now they're using one time a week, that is a huge harm reduction for that patient. Yeah, that's a and victory. So the oral swab, right? So the oral swab may not be perfect, but it's, it's better. And it's a way for us to gauge that, yes, they're still taking their buprenorphine, they're still struggling with this or that. So it just opened the dialogue about where is the patient at right now and what is the struggle and how can we help and support. That was Adela Haida. She is the OBOT or office-based opioid treatment nurse for Barry Family Health Center. And our other guest this week is Dr. Stephen Martin, Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Community Health at University of Massachusetts Medical School and faculty physician at Barry Family Health Center as well as affiliate faculty for the HMS Center for Primary Care. And they join us to talk about caring for patients with opioid use disorder in primary care in celebration of Recovery Month this week. In particular, we focus on an article that Dr. Martin published with several colleagues in Annals of Internal Medicine in November 2018 that focuses on a number of widely accepted, yet not evidence-based and potentially even harmful practices in buprenorphine care. I'm Audrey Provenzano, host of Review Systems, your podcast telling the stories of primary care with the HMS Center for Primary Care and a PCP in the Boston area. So let's get started. Let's start with my favorite thing, a patient story. Adele, maybe can you share with us a story about a patient recovery for whom you feel that the care you've been able to provide has made a big difference? I can. I had a 49-year-old woman come in with a 30-year history of heroin use cocaine use, polysubstance use. She had had some loss in her family, and she had lost a nephew that seemed to really bring it home for her. And she had come in and she had asked for help. We had started her on buprenorphine. We had done an, an in-clinic induction, got her on an appropriate dose. The story behind this patient was that she was not only using drugs, but at one point dealing the drugs. And so there's a long history. She reached this pivotal moment in her life and she came in for help and we helped her <laughs> and from that point to now she has just been rock solid comes in for every appointment she's almost become like the monarch for her family like she's got all the nephews and nieces around her in check she no longer is using drugs or dealing drugs her personal goal was that by the time she turned 50 this past June, that she would be free of drugs to go on a family vacation. And she actually has met that goal. So she has come in weekly in the beginning, and then she came in every two weeks. And we moved them out as, you know, they're showing up, and things are appropriate, and things are looking better, and the patient is feeling better. And she actually moved to monthly visits. And then she hit her year about a week ago I saw her and we actually created these recovery tickets for our patients we're like the cheerleaders in the background you know like so when you hit um, we do a 30-day ticket we do a 60-day 90-day and on them are little slogans like you're on a roll you've got this they're just encouraging little cards that kind of show them the stages and how far they've come and last year, last week, she actually got her gold card, which makes her gold status. And it means that she mm -hmm. now moved to every two-month two visits. Oh, um, and it was a, a, a major moment for her. A lot of laughter, a lot of joy, a lot of tears in the room. <laughs> but very rewarding and a lot of work on her part. And she's just an amazing story to tell. 
That is amazing. I think it's illustrative of one of the things that I think many people love about addiction care, that it impacts so many more people mm-hmm. aside from the patient. I'm not sure if my patients who I have diabetes who get their A1C and goal, if it affects their children and parents and sisters and brothers in the way that it does for a patient who you're able to help through into into some recovery. And Steve, what about you? Sure. I'm just struck by Adele's story and there's so many others that fit that that mold, thankfully. Um, I'm thinking of a, a patient for whom we had the benefit of helping during her prenatal care and having her be on buprenorphine during that care. She had had a number of other deliveries and children, but wasn't able to leave the hospital uh, with the children. They were each placed in Department of Children and Families custody during their, uh, after being born uh, due to her ongoing substance use. Um, but this was the first child she was able to go home with because she was really in a very solid recovery. And by the virtues of family medicine, I'd care for her and her daughter. And just seeing them grow up together and uh, the benefits of having this family be together are just remarkable. And her daughter is now very much looking forward to starting school and excited. And uh, their relationship is really priceless. But if I were to pick one quote that really sticks out for me, it was from a gentleman who's in his early 40s who's been uh, using heroin since his teens. And after several years in care with us, which have been somewhat bumpy at times, he said, you know, I can now look in the mirror and I just don't hate myself. And um, wow. like you mentioned, Audrey, that those are the kinds of extraordinary moments that Adele and I and so many others share when we're working with folks with substance use disorders. Okay. So let's talk about some of the misconceptions about buprenorphine care that you write about in your article. You can find the article linked on our website. It was published in Annals of Internal Medicine, I think in November 2018. So the first one I wanted to cover was about induction. You know, Adele, you mentioned this about, you know, kind of the process of starting a patient on buprenorphine. Previously, Mm -hmm. it was thought that patients really benefited from having an in-office induction. But evidence at this point really doesn't support that. And many folks see it as an unnecessary barrier to people starting the medication. Tell us about this myth and, you know, what are your considerations around the shared decision-making for a patient in deciding a home versus office induction? Adele, maybe do you want to start first? Initially, when I first started here about three years ago doing this work, it was very much induction in clinic. That was the thought process, right? Because the patient comes in, they're in withdrawal, you're dosed, you're under the you know, supervision of a nurse and a doctor. They considered it to be the safest way to do it. But what we did find is that that actually creates barriers for people to actually start recovery sooner, and it can be done just as safely at home with proper instruction, with follow-up calls. And we found that the home inductions, we actually were able to get people care and help sooner. So if a patient walked in on Friday afternoon at 3 and they're asking for help, now we we close. (laughs) So we wouldn't want a patient to continue to use through the weekend then we would be able to help them in this way and get them going on this medication sooner than later. So those those are the things that we saw. And we found it to be really successful here in Barrie. We give them a handwritten instruction. It's a step-by-step. It's what to wait for, what to look for, how to feel, and when to dose and how to dose. And then we have the follow-up touch with the patient via phone call or face-to-face to see how it's going and how they're feeling and where they're at. 
So just to be kind of explicit about it for people maybe who aren't familiar, the idea is you want to wait until the patient is in a certain amount of withdrawal to start the medication. Otherwise, you may even induce withdrawal. Right. You know, there are these tools out there that kind of help patients categorize and inventory their withdrawal symptoms, for example, diarrhea or sweating, that can help them decide when to start taking the film or or the tablet under their tongue and avoid the potential harm of inducing more withdrawal, which can be, you know, just really uncomfortable for patients. Exactly. Got it. And Steve, do you have anything to add here? I just think in general, when we talk about misconceptions, we have a lot of misconceptions in, in our regular practices as well, whether it's beta blockers being contraindicated in heart failure or universally having people take aspirin even for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. And we've had to, to learn a lot about opioid use disorder just in the last 15 years when as, as buprenorphine has been available in the United States. And we owe a lot to people who have done this research and helped us understand things. But the initial ideas of office-based induction, it appears that they were derived mostly from methadone. That's the term that's used with methadone care in opioid treatment programs. And understandably, the, the, the guidelines beginning in 2004 were a bit conservative, asking for not just in-office in induction, but you know, over the course of a day or two or three. But we've known since 2003 with studies in homelessness and ever since studies at Bellevue, where they've been treating people for over a decade uh, with home induction methods, that people do just as well. They stay in, they're retained as long. Their improvement is, is as solid as if they had started with a, uh, an office-based induction. And if you actually look at pro- uh, providers, uh, one of the biggest barriers to beginning buprenorphine care is this concern about induction and concern about doing harm. And as Adele mentioned, that virtually never happens after a good conversation with patients and, uh, and also with the fact that many of them are very familiar with buprenorphine at this point and probably could teach me a thing or two about how to get started and when they feel right, ready to do so. So I really am really grateful that we can not have this barrier to patients beginning care, that they can begin uh, at their own pace and when it's necessary and needed. Uh, and it, it allows the office flow to work a lot better for patients as well. Yeah, I have to say, I honestly cannot recall ever having started a patient on buprenorphine who hadn't taken it before, either because they'd been in a program before or they'd gotten it from a friend. And I always ask patients, you know, what what dose have you taken before that has helped you feel okay? I find it a helpful starting place for the conversation. The National Institute for Drug Abuse and uh, SAMHSA have guidelines for home induction that are freely available. And we have our colleagues in the emergency department have also been publishing guidance as they begin patients in the ER who may begin at home if their withdrawal isn't severe enough to start in the ER. Okay, great. So another topic that you address in your article and you know we see all the time is about relapse. And previously it was kind of thought if a patient relapses, the treatment isn't working and they should do something else. But maybe, you know, buprenorphine isn't the right thing for them. And the approach that seems more evidence-based and, and you really advocate more in your article is that, you know, relapse is an opportunity to increase supports and increase treatment and engage more with buprenorphine. Obviously, there are other medications and other approaches should also be considered, but relapse doesn't necessarily mean automatically and really shouldn't automatically mean taking someone out of a buprenorphine program. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So relapse or or return to use is sort of a default 
likely for many patients, where whether they're they're working to stop use of cigarettes or other substances, there are these iterative times of being able to abstain and and returning to use that can follow each other. The, the hazard of discontinuing buprenorphine for patients who may still be using opioids is that there are a host of reasons for why they may have returned to use. And uh, there's almost a differential diagnosis of this return to use of whether they've encountered a friend with whom they used to use with, or they've had a particular stressor, or they're just having difficulty with the dose that they're on. Uh, there are a variety of reasons we need to sort of unpack with a patient and understand why they may have returned to use. For some people, we're really using a harm reduction strategy and the, the patient isn't fully interested in full abstinence. And we need to understand that as well. Knowing the, the benefits that come with improved health and improved mortality with buprenorphine, our, our general goal is to maintain people in care, maintain this treatment for them, and then continue to work on reasons that they may have returned to use that are individual for that patient. Mm-hmm. Keeping in mind, as you mentioned, Audrey, though, that, that there are other alternatives, including uh, methadone and naltrexone, that can be available for patients and that we need to consider as well. Adele, what is your approach when a patient may have relapsed and, and they come in to see you? My approach with the patient is patient-driven. We just talk. We talk about it. We never want, I never want it to be, it's never punitive. It's never judgmental. It's not part of recovery. I don't like to say it quite like that, but it's an expected part of it at times. And I simply talk to the patient. Um, where are they at? How do they feel about it? How can we help them? That kind of an approach. They punish themselves enough. They don't need it from their healthcare provider. <laughs> so, and so we just go with that approach. And we just help them through whatever they want to share, whatever they're struggling for. That's, it's a very individual approach, depending on the patient's story and what they have to share with me. So lots of our patients also have comorbid mood disorders or polysubstance use disorders or other chronic mental illness. And so another extremely common misconception that you describe in your article is that many providers feel patients really need or require counseling or some other kind of behavioral health intervention, but it's not actually evidence-based. Steve, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what you recommend in terms of an approach, counseling or additional supports for patients? Absolutely. So we're, Adele and I are really fortunate to work in a, a health center that has integrated behavioral health. So right down the hall from Adele and myself are a number of psychologists and uh, counseling social workers who are incredibly adept at substance use disorder, at co-occurring disorders, meeting patients where they are. We have warm handoffs, uh, thankfully, all the time. And so we're grateful that that we, it's not due to a lack of ability to care for patients uh, with counseling in our location. It's just as Adele mentioned earlier, sort of meeting people where they are. And our colleagues in behavioral health also recognize that counseling patients who don't want to be there is not a, is a sort of an exercise in futility and not helpful for the patient and not helpful for the system. And we have the evidence now to show that this is the case. In, in the recent um, guidance for opioid use disorder, uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration cites four different randomized trials that didn't show a benefit for counseling uh, in addition to medication for opioid use disorder. And uh, the World Health Organization actually now calls the medication psychosocially assisted pharmacologic treatment. So the medication really can take for some patients a core 
part of their recovery and help them make that possible. What we found also is that patients find support in so many different areas, whether it's a loved one at home, a leader in their religion, um, a trusted family member. For some people, it's 12-step programs. For others, it's online groups. We're always grateful when, when people find the resources that they need and that fit their approach to their recovery. But thankfully, the counseling in and of itself is not a requirement of the legislation that allows for buprenorphine. It's the ability to refer patients to counseling that is required. And so we're grateful to fulfill that. And we're also grateful to acknowledge that patients have all sorts of different kinds of supports that they can access and that we work to help facilitate, um, but they don't have to be formal counseling. Adele, what are your thoughts about this? If you force behavioral health on someone, then that becomes a requirement and it becomes almost like a punishment. Got to go here to have this. or You've got to do this to do this. That's never going to work. So if you tell someone they have to go to therapy, but they're not on board with therapy, they're not going to benefit from it. And it can actually cause more anxiety and more stress. Not all patients want to talk to somebody one-on-one. I have a lot of patients that, believe it or not, do not like the meetings, and sometimes those meetings can become an area of a uh, trigger. It's very individualized. And then I have other patients that love them, go religiously, couldn't do this without it. So it's just very individual, and I think the patient, when the patient is ready, will find the resources and the support and the help they need and what they need and how they need it. People months into their recovery, years into their recovery, they might find that counseling is something that they're they're wanting to seek and we're grateful to facilitate it at that point. But I, this idea of really meeting the patient where they are and facilitating the best support for them sort of is our, is our North Star in this work. Great. Another area that you talk about in your article is about how tox screens are utilized. I feel like this is an area that is, is just, it is so fraught because, you know, a lot of us think about tox screens kind of in the setting of managing chronic pain and then those conversations that you have to have when, you know, maybe the tox screen isn't as expected in that kind of setting. And we sometimes get into a situation where we're really dogmatic about what the tox screen should show. And then if it doesn't match up, we can end up really harming patients if we just pull the opioid or the buprenorphine off. So how can tox screens really be used to support patients in recovery and, and, and not harm them? I think that, you know, we're so used to uh, tests being relatively objective in medicine, uh, even though we recognize the, that each test has its own operating characteristics and can really fool us. But toxicology testing is no different in terms of the ability to mislead us, whether it's the actual sensitivity and specificity of the first test. You know, we don't give patients, when we're testing for HIV, we don't give them their antibody results. We wait if they're positive for a, a, de- a definitive viral load test. And similarly with toxicology testing, we really have to be cautious about making decisions that affect patients' care and use the best available evidence that we can have. It's also interesting that really this hasn't been very well studied. And there are just a handful of that of studies that have looked to see if toxicology testing actually improves patient outcomes. So I think we need to be aware that even though it's a very standard part of practice, we're not really sure how to use it. And if so, ways that can most benefit patients. But one way that can harm patients certainly is if people interpret the presence of cocaine 
or methamphetamine or other substances than opioids as a reason to discontinue care. Sometimes people use the concentration of the substance as a way to evaluate a patient, even though that's not really possible given the characteristics of the test. Other situations involve urine testing that can be punitive. And so patients have a certain reason to perhaps adulterate their specimens, then it's hard to evaluate the specimen. Or in some situations, they're observed with their urine testing, which can be its own sort of form of harm for patients who have had a history of trauma. So for all these reasons, as you mentioned, Audrey, we're we're cautious about the testing that we do, and yet we still have proceeded with it. We've changed uh, about three years ago to uh, an oral test that uses uh, saliva as the medium uh, for testing. And this gets us around a lot of the questions about adulteration and the difficulty of urine testing for uh, a large number of patients in in a primary care setting. And then when we use the testing, we often, if we see cocaine, we really have conversations with patients about, you know, the fact that cocaine is often laced now with fentanyl. We're, we're concerned about their health and concerned that they may not know that and may not know the substance they're getting and may be harmed by it. Really, the, our testing in the, in the main is, is helping to support a patient's recovery and health. And then to work with them when we find substances that may be, that, that certainly could harm them. Great. Adele, what about you? You know, how do you think about what goes through your mind when you when you think about interpreting results? We did switch, as Dr. Martin said, to oral swabs about three years ago when I came in. So the Utox wasn't really what I've been using. I've been using the oral swabs. But I don't think that we ever want to use an oral swab to say the whole picture on a patient. I think the whole picture has to match. I also think we test it for two different reasons. Number one, are they taking their Suboxone? And number two, it could open a dialogue for whatever else we might see in there. And that way we can help them through whatever they may be going through. So recovery isn't you come in and you get on Suboxone and now you're just perfect. That's not recovery. Some people can do fine and in a month. Wow, right? And other people, it might take a year. It might take longer. I think what we look at with recovery and oral swabs is never be punitive. So they're not a tool to punish a patient. You would never fire a patient because their results aren't what we want them to be, right? So we, then we go into the harm reduction mode. Like if a patient is using heroin seven times a day and they're on Suboxone and now they're using one time a week, that is a huge harm reduction for that patient. Yeah, that's a and victory. So the oral swab... Right, so the oral swab may not be perfect, but it's it's better, and it's a way for us to gauge that yes, they're still taking their buprenorphine, they're still struggling with this or that. We also are seeing, you know, there's so much being done to the drugs on the streets out there that it's scary. So if you see a patient with cocaine, you and you have to, you know, you have the conversation, the risks of the lacing with fentanyl and the deaths related to cocaine, and so it just opens a dialogue about where is the patient at right now and what is the struggle and how can we help and support. But results should never, ever be used as something punitive to terminate a patient from care. Adele, you alluded to this comment a little bit earlier when you were talking about kind of peer support groups, but there are a lot of patients who may be doing really well on buprenorphine but are subjected to pressure from family members or other people in the recovery community who just due to stigma think that people taking a medication are not truly in recovery. You know, that gets into this kind of complicated delineation Mm -hmm. or maybe not complicated, but I think misunderstood idea of dependence versus addiction. And 
Right. I've had a bunch of patients who come in and say, you know, I really want to try to get off my buprenorphine. So what are your thoughts about, about, you know, people staying on buprenorphine long term and when people come in and talk with you about whether they want to wean off of it? How does that conversation go? And then, and you know, what does the evidence say about when we should have this conversation or if we should have this conversation with patients? So this is one of the topics that I tend to be a little more passionate about, <laughs> and Dr. Martin would know this, <laughs> is that I don't think that we should look at this medication maybe, and I don't know, I've, I've been doing this for three years, so maybe 10 years ago the thought was get on, get off. This is not a replacement drug. They're not high. They're just not sick. And it's treating an illness. It's treating an injury, if you will. And Dr. Martin, you can correct me if my terminology is wrong, because I'm not a physician, <laughs> almost as though it's like treat it like a brain injury. So whatever got you to this point, dependence, abuse of a drug, the bottom line is the injury to the brain is what it is. And this is a medication to treat that injury. And we've gone to support things in programs where they've showed that scans show the brain does in fact can heal and improve and things can get better for that patient. But I kind of talk to my patients when they first come on. And some of them will come to me and say, well, I want to get on, but I want to get off. And I'll look at them and say, so we're going to get on and we're going to get well. And then we're going to talk about that down the road. We're not going to have that conversation until much down the road. Because the focus should be feeling better and getting better. And I equate it like if you have a patient who's a diabetic and they need insulin and they need 10 units of Lantus at night forever, wouldn't they take it? If you have a patient that has hypertension and they need 10 milligrams of lisinopril daily, would they take it? So if this patient needs 4 milligrams for the rest of their lives to be okay, they should take it. So I think my approach is that this is a medication to treat an illness. It's not a replacement drug. That being said, if a patient comes to me and says, I'm sick of taking pills, I do get this, and I don't want to be on this medication forever, then I go where the patient is at, and we start a taper, and we do a very slow approach. Sometimes the patients can successfully wean off, and others will stay on two milligrams. So it's very individual, but I kind of let the patient lead that conversation. I don't force tapering on any patient. And Steve, what is your approach? Well, I echo Adele <laughs> and completely. And we know this from certainly our work with individual patients, but also the literature is fairly clear that when people come off treatment such as buprenorphine, that their risk of mortality is significantly higher when they're out of this treatment and that their mortality rates don't approach their age match cohorts until at least a year of treatment on buprenorphine. So as Adele said, it's a matter of, I think, framing really is helpful. Uh, one of our colleagues, Dan Mullen, when speaking with you know skeptical friends or family says well if you if you want to think about it that way then you're right it is replacing a medication or replacing a drug but it's replacing a drug that will kill you with another drug that won't and for most all of our patients the vast majority have been on and stayed on buprenorphine and they feel really healthy with their lives as Adele mentioned they don't feel as though they are beholden to a medication. We've really worked with them to normalize ongoing use of buprenorphine, and, and they've been thriving with it. Great. So to close, what thoughts or advice do you have for anyone listening, you know, nurses, 
clinic administrators, NPs, physicians, PAs, anyone listening who is not yet wavered for the physicians or not yet involved in any kind of addiction care and primary care, or maybe who is wavered and you know nervous about prescribing, what thoughts and advice do you have for them? Um, how would you encourage them to get involved this year in Recovery Month? Um, Adele, maybe we'll start with you. I have to say from my own personal experience, I've been a nurse for 20 years, and I've done a lot of different types of nursing. But I have to say that this has been the most rewarding work I have ever done, ever. It's challenging. It can be frustrating, but there's also a lot of joy and a lot of success. And you really feel like you're helping someone. You really feel like you're impacting someone's life in the better direction. And anybody that has the ability to step up and help somebody in that need, if you've saved one life, you've made a difference. And you have to be on board with treatment and being able to manage these types of patients because, again, they can be, can be challenging, but it's also very rewarding. Great. Thank you. And Steve, what about you? Just to quote our colleague, Dan Mellon, again, who's very quotable, in primary care, you don't get to choose the epidemic that you're given. And our epidemic at this time, where we are, that it is most harmful to people is, is opioid use disorder. And as Adele mentioned, the health that you can help people regain, the lives you can help people reestablish is extraordinary. And among the among most remarkable clinical experiences that, that anyone will ever have. I would say, you know, other two quick pieces of advice. One is just to get started. It's the the first few patients you, you care for, just like anything we do, can be feel unnerving. But once you see that the benefit people are having, it's really a great positive feedback uh, mechanism. And the second is sort of a bit evident from our conversation today. You know, the, the my ability and the gift I have to work with Adele and other colleagues at Barry really makes the patient's experience more positive and effective. And so having, as we often talk about in primary care, having a team of people that you can work with who are all looking toward the patient's best interests and are there to help patients where they are uh, has been invaluable and a real gift to patients, I hope. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Review of Systems, your podcast telling the stories of primary care with the Harvard Medical School Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. A huge thank you to our assistant editor, Parsa Irfani, who makes each show possible. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps others find the show. Share us on social media and with your friends and colleagues. We'd love to hear feedback and suggestions, so you can tweet us at ROS Podcast, at HMS Primary Care, and I'm at Audrey MDMPH, or if you're not on Twitter, you can drop us a line at reviewofsystemspod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>